Many of us, no doubt, will be familiar with The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the much-dramatised, much-filmed book that opens C.S. Lewis's allegorical Narnia series. And we remember how, in this book, Narnia is held in a perpetual winter, and it waits for the coming of Aslan, the lion and Christ figure who's going to put everything right again. And so some human children enter this world, meet various creatures, friendly and unfriendly. And there's a scene in the house of some friendly beavers, isn't there, where expectancy about Aslan's coming is discussed. I'm not going to try and do the beaver's West Country accents, but um, he says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And Lewis goes on to say, And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was, but the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each of the children felt something jump in their inside. Edmund, who we might remember has become a traitor if we know the story, felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realise it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. And so, in this sense of magic and awe about the coming of Aslan, Lewis gives us a picture of the expectation surrounding the coming of God's Messiah. Through the weeks of Advent, we looked at the way that some of the Old Testament prophets forecast both the first and the second comings of Jesus. And we saw the intense expectancy, the tremendous sense of need, waiting for centuries to be fulfilled. And then things start to happen. There's the birth of John the Baptist where his father, Zacharias, like Abraham, doubting for a while how the promised son is going to come, is struck dumb for not believing that it could happen until finally he writes his son's name and can speak again. The reactions of Anna and Simeon who show such awe and praise when Jesus is taken to the Jerusalem temple for his circumcision. These two people in Luke chapter 2 who've been waiting so long for this moment. Simeon has been told by God that he won't die till he has seen Jesus. And when he finally gets to see him, he speaks some incredible words among them that this child will be the rising and falling of many in Israel. Hope for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Anna, who from this moment on speaks of this child to all who look for redemption. They're like those in the Narnia story, aren't they, who react to Aslan with joy. And what Simeon says is a truth that when the Magi come to see this child, will sharply separate them from Herod and still separates people today into the only two classes or categories that matter before God. That the only way we rise or fall before God is how we've responded to Jesus. And so after centuries of silence, centuries of waiting, the promise 
is here. And yet, when the Magi come, what Matthew shows us is that it's taken a bunch of pagan astrologers to join the dots in a way that more of God's people did not. And when they come seeking a king of the Jews, Matthew pointedly tells us in verse 3 that it's not only Herod the king who's troubled, all Jerusalem is troubled with him. This may mean all the people, or it may be just a figure of speech for the Sanhedrin who Herod consults, but it shows, doesn't it, a ripple effect of disquiet. Have any of them heard what's gone on with Zacharias, with Simeon and Nana, with that night that the shepherds left their flocks and hurtled into Bethlehem? Do they perhaps fear what Herod might do, what the Romans might think? Have they seen the star too and either not picked up what it means or chosen to ignore it? When Herod calls them and interrogates them, they know well enough where it's all pointing but they do nothing. And so, for most commentators, whatever their motivations actually were, they stand as an example of indifference. They can discern something significant, they can see that something important is happening, but they miss the need to follow and apply it for themselves. The need that we all have to look at the baby of Bethlehem and ask, all these things that are spoken concerning him being the hope of all people, a refuge, the only one who makes us right with God, what does that mean for me? And so they don't follow the Magi's journey to the truth. Meanwhile, Herod, for whom Jesus is a threat, like Edmund in the Narnia scene, feels only horror. Edmund has betrayed his siblings to the White Witch, and so for him the coming of Aslan means only terror as it means he's chosen the wrong side, even though Aslan will eventually redeem him. Herod is a puppet king installed by the Romans. His dynasty supplanted a line of kings called the Hasmoneans, who in the period between the Old and New Testaments were regarded by the people as heroes and liberators. He's also half an Edomite, descended on half of his parentage from Esau, the one who renounced his birthright, turned away, and is therefore not seen as a pure Jew. So he really doesn't have a lot going for him, and he hasn't helped himself by massacring several members of his family who he suspected are plotting against him. And he's also imprisoned several members of the Jewish council with orders that they should be killed on his death to commemorate his passing. A little something to remember your departed monarch by, perhaps a hung parliament in a very literal sense. (laughs) So for him, not a lawful king and a paranoid murderer to boot, a new king who might fulfil prophecy spells only terror. It seems to threaten his power base. But he's missed the point, hasn't he? Because Jesus isn't that sort of king. He's nothing as petty as that. And if Herod had known the scriptures that he suddenly gets so uptight and worried about, he would have seen in the book of Micah that his priests quote to him in verse 6 this. 
His goings forth are from old, from ancient times, or as some translations have it, from the days of eternity. This king will act in the strength of the Lord, and he will be great to the ends of the earth. Not interested in your tin pot throne, but someone whose kingdom is more eternal than Herod's, more eternal even than Rome's, or any political dominion or peer pressure in our world. As John would later have it, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is Israel's Messiah, yes, of course, but his business is eternal. He's someone to trust in, not to feel threatened by. But instead, Herod just epitomizes petty jealousy and paranoia. And what he leaves us with is that God's plan will always be opposed, but never defeated. Because one of the great ironies here is that, unlike Herod, who doesn't really have a clue, these wise men from the East who represent the beginning of Gentiles coming to Christ, they understand how important this is. They know that this is a king of the Jews, and they followed his star to near Jerusalem. It's hard to be certain as to who they actually were. There's no... um, There's no direct biblical confirmation for the names and nationalities that tradition gives them. But what many commentators see as probable is that they were from the Magi of the East who were Persian priest magicians who wielded immense power. No king in their land would be confirmed without their say-so. These are powerful people, but they seek one who has more power yet. And if they are Persian magi, maybe as well, their journey is because they remember some of their own people's past encounters with the God of Israel. Daniel chapter 5 tells us that way, way back, Daniel was appointed chief of the magicians and diviners, the magi. So these people had a memory of God's dealings in their past. So did their ancestors dealing with Daniel lead them to delve into the Hebrew scriptures and see the prophecies there, see that this was where the star was taking them? If so, what we can see is that God has used the time of exile not just to chastise his people, but also missionally to seed knowledge of himself in these pagan seers. And what's certain in any case is that they can see what Herod doesn't, and so they come. And we know, don't we, that their journey was long and hazardous. If they did come from Persia or, say, Iran, that would have been about 1,400 miles. A slight consolation is that this would probably have been on Arabian horses, not camels. If you've ever been on a camel... I leave it to your imagination, doing that kind of length of journey on the back of one. Some of it would have been through the desert. They wouldn't have been without defence. The Bible nowhere says there were only three of them. They probably had armed guards with them. And they were also technically in enemy territory, because since about 66 BC, Rome and Persia had fought an on-off war that would continue for several centuries into the Christian era. And that meant that whether or not there was active conflict at the point where Christ is born, 
there was a cold war and uneasy stalemate. And yet they come, and they come because however God has done it, they know that something of eternal significance is happening. And when they have got through Herod to find this child, these powerful magi do only one thing. They don't ignore where things are pointing like the priests. They don't feel threatened like Herod. They worship. And so the very obvious question begged here now is this. Given the very different reactions to Jesus, Simeon's words that we thought about earlier, which of these responses to Jesus Christ is ours? Will we be indifferent, feel threatened? Or will we be people who follow him no matter what, in constant awe and worship and thankfulness? Herod could have chosen to find in Jesus everything that the New Testament promises that we can and should. Identity, security, forgiveness, peace, adoption, hope. So is Jesus the place where we let ourselves find all of these things? Given that the Magi represent the Gentiles coming to Christ, which ultimately includes ourselves, who will we keep praying for this year to come to know him as we do? Because ultimately, what these wise men and their gifts represent is something of who Christ is and who we are in him. Traditionally, gold represents Jesus' kingship in the Old Testament in Solomon's temple. The most holy place where God dwelt was lined with gold. And we give Christ gold, don't we, when we acknowledge his lordship over us over who we are. When we let the Magi's worship show us the truth of Paul's words in Philippians, I count all things as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. When we perhaps take time to think about what it means for us when Paul urges us to present ourselves as living sacrifices when we seek to reflect him in our life choices, to grow in relationship with him through prayer and worship and his word. Frankincense represents Christ's priesthood and also his purity. In the Old Testament, it was part of the oil that was used to consecrate priests and set them apart for God's service. It it also formed part of some of the offerings to make them smell sweet before God, but not the sin offering. It couldn't touch something that represented what was unclean, because if it touched the sin offering, it would seem to be condoning the sin by making it smell sweet. And so it shows us, doesn't it, that our sin can't mix with God's purity. But in Jesus, in this child that the Magi have so diligently sought out, God takes our sin and deals with the problem by becoming himself an offering 
a sacrifice. And because he's made us clean, because we know we've all fallen short of his glory, because being redeemed by him is the greatest thing that a human being can know, we follow and seek him. Because incense also says something to us about our prayer and worship. In one of these psalms, the psalmist prays that his prayers would come before God like incense. And in the book of Revelation, we see an answer to that prayer. It says this. The four living elders, the four living creatures, sorry, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. And although Revelation is partly at least a vision of the end of days, it shows us, doesn't it, that our prayers are never in vain, but they're gathered and used in heaven. And so we pray diligently, don't we? We pray for forgiveness, we pray with joy and praise, we pray in intercession for others, we pray in dependence on God for his wisdom and for peace. And however hard it sometimes is, however much it sometimes feels that our prayers are just hitting the floor, they go up before God like incense. And so when we pray this week, when we have our quiet time, let's hold that in our heart, shall we? Finally, we know that myrrh was used to anoint dead bodies. It symbolises the death that Jesus died that each of us deserved. And so for us, as we gather today around the Lord's Supper, the communion table, we remember his death for us that should have been ours. And so in the people in our passage, we've had indifference, hostility, but wisdom from these truly wise pagan men who understood who Jesus was and what he meant. So let's be wise people too today, shall we? Let's let the Magi and their gifts remind us of all that Jesus has done. And as we prepare to gather round his table, let's worship him with joy.